but I do just want to start by honouring um, Pastor Charles and April. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing Charles. Actually, I've got a couple of affiliations to your church. I've known Lockie Rogers for a number of years from his time in New Zealand. I first met him in Bendigo about eight or nine years ago. I also have a connection to Rembrandt, who's sitting down here on the, my right. Um, but I didn't know about that connection until I met him again on Tuesday. I met him and I said, man, you look familiar. Have we met before? And Rembrandt, Rembrandt says, um, yes. He said, you made me eat a crab when I was 15 years old. <laughs> I'm just really thankful he never took that to journalists. Uh, I was doing a youth camp in Torquay for the church in Bendigo, uh, maybe 2015. And I saw a crab, dead crab on the beach and there was a youth kid. So I abused my privilege as the guest minister and pressured the kid into eating the crab and Thank God you're still in church, buddy. It could have gone <laughs> any which way. Um, but it's, it just, I just feel at home, and I just want to thank you, Charles, um, for the time that we've had over Western Australia tour, and then this week, every time I'm with you, I feel encouraged. I feel more in love with the church. I feel more in love with the, the work we get to do with young people, and I feel more inspired to just be a better man, a better father, a better leader. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you for being fun, uh, and I also want to thank you for or well, the free medical advice I get as well. I have a lump on my left leg. And I just walk up to Charles. I'm like, Charles, can you touch it? <laughs> and he's like, oh, this is what it is. And I don't know because you're not practicing. I don't know if it's legit, but you use big words. You use big words, so it sounds legitimate. Uh, and, of course, April, we know behind any man who's doing anything um, great is a woman who keeps everything in order and everything together, um, and thank you for releasing Charles to do what he's done, not just this year, but in the years gone by. Thank you for allowing me into your home to hang out with your children, and letting me come to Jai's game yesterday. I got to go and watch Jai play basketball, under 14s, he's the smallest player on the court, and uh, I got all his, I measured your stats, he had quarter of his team's points, in fact, just over quarter of his team's, team's points, uh, four assists, two blocks, he blocked the largest player on the court with a perfectly timed block and about six turnovers. But we don't measure those <laughs> under 15, okay, buddy? <laughs> Incredible. Uh, thank you for letting me come and yell at you, Jai, too. But um, thank you guys for having me. Uh, here's hoping this morning is great. Um, I do just want to honor one, before I launch into things, too, Mark Robinson. Uh, Mark is incredible. Um, you guys want to know that? You can give him a clap. Everyone probably does it, I imagine. Um, but I love Mark. Uh, just a little story about Mark is um, I think we had a 6 a.m. pickup before we were heading off to Bendigo on Tuesday. Uh, and my body clock was already accustomed to New Zealand time, so it was a couple of hours ahead. So I was up early, and I walked out onto the balcony of the accommodation I was at, and Mark was um, at least 15 minutes early to pick everyone up. Um, I could see him in the truck. Um, I could see the light on in his reading the itinerary for the day, just making sure that he was prepared for the people that he was serving that day. Um, but that wasn't just Tuesday. That's every single day. Uh, he's just solid and so supporting of so many people. So thank you, Mark. You're amazing. Let's give him a clap. Okay. Um, and then I just want to acknowledge to those watching online, all the sick ones, the fallen comrades at home. I'm so glad it's you and not me. Um, I had that, and it sucks, uh, but we pray you get well and get well quick, and just to encourage you and the church here, um, I, would, I would be going to miss if I didn't get to take the chance to honor you and your faithful giving towards things like Hope Tour, 
Uh, we might not ever see some of those kids step into church or this particular church, but I trust in every school we go to, we take the gospel. It's wrapped up in words and stories and jokes that they can understand. And if we can just pull a kid a little bit closer to an opportunity to encounter Christ, it's a huge win. For so many kids, they're going to school depressed and anxious. And if we can make them laugh in a moment, laugh in a moment, we are serving them. Um, so thank you for what you've um, provided. Thank you for the way that you've prayed. And thank you for the way that you've given uh, to see so many young people impacted, not just this year, but in the years gone by as well. Um, the strange thing about what we do is we don't always get the stories back. We don't always hear the testimonies, um, but I trust that they do happen. Um, I trust that there are kids that are on the edge of life and the edge of making a decision that might um, lead to negative things. They're coming back from that. Kids who are on the edge of self-harming and substance abuse, they would come away from that as they get hope in a program in schools. And we don't always hear the testimonies, but we did get one back this week, which I wanted to read you. And as uh, I read it, um, I'm sure your hearts will just enlarge a little bit because you did this. This message said, hey guys, I was at the Hope Tour today at school. I just wanted to message to say thank you for the talk today and the performances. At my school assembly and at youth tonight, it really inspired me. I've been struggling a lot with my mental health and I was recently hospitalized as I had plans to take my life a few weeks ago. Your message today really stood out for me. For the first time in what feels like forever, I feel understood. I feel like it's okay to reach out for help despite feeling so isolated. I just needed you to know that you truly made a difference in my life and changed the way I now view myself. Tonight, I love the words they use, was a magical night. And I just encourage you to keep changing lives because you are all really making a difference. And that's the hope. Yeah, let's, that's you. So thank you for your faithfulness over the years. Um, that's just one testimony of so so many. Um, but I'm excited to get into the Word today, and before we do, let me introduce myself. My name is Benji. I am from West Auckland, New Zealand. If you don't know where that is, it's just the west part of Auckland. That is where I grew up. It's a terrible joke. I've had the marvelous privilege over the last maybe decade to speak to close to 450,000 students, um, and I never take that lightly. The chance to get in front of young people is an incredible, incredible opportunity, so thank you for allowing me to do it after a couple of years off. It was nice to shake off the rust and get back into it and see that my heart is still so much for our young people. Uh, but my greatest blessing in life and probably my greatest achievement is this lot. You can put up that photo, Mal. This is my beautiful family. That's my beautiful daughter, Micah Rose. On uh, your left here, she's just turned one. She's about 14 months now. She's absolutely insane. She is wild. She's stubborn, just like her mother. Uh, but she's cheeky which I like to take credit for. And on the right-hand side here is my son, Malachi. He's almost five this October. And that's my beautiful wife, Esther, um, who is, um, she uh, works for an organization in New Zealand called Christians Against Poverty, has an incredible job with them. Uh, but she also speaks a lot too in churches, and she is 100 times the speaker I am. And people go, oh, you're being modest, you're being humble, you're being biased. Um, but no, that's verbatim what people say to me. Uh, and maybe one day we'll, well, you'll get to find out, um, but they're incredible. The reason I love showing that photo is because I've just learned um, that I get credibility when I'm associated with beautiful people. Um, so that is my family. You can take that down. Um, let's pray, and then let's get into the Word this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness and your kindness. Uh, revolutionize our worlds this morning and draw us closer to you. 
so that we may draw the world closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to pull up a scripture and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. And I do have to just preface this with I'm a little bit nervous this morning um, because I like to preach without notes and my preference is to tell stories. Um, But as I went back into preparing last night, I just felt like God was saying particular things. So I ended up writing a ton of notes, um, which I don't usually have. So I'm going to be a little bit nervous getting through them all this morning. But we're going to race through. And I'm trusting that as we go through um, some of the lessons, uh, God's going to unlock some stuff for us. But let's bring up that scripture. Romans 12 verse 2. You'll know this one. You'll be familiar with it. You've heard it before. This is Paul writing to the Romans. He says, do not copy the behaviors and customs of this world, or do not conform to the behaviors and patterns of this world, but, everybody say but, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It's an incredible scripture, and there's so much in it. So today we're going to unpack it a little bit. But the part I like the most is when God does those things, we don't conform. He changes the way we think. He makes us a new person. I love the bottom part. Then we will learn to know his will for us, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Does anyone want to know in clarity what the will of God is for their life? Um, I know I do. I've been around church long enough to know that um, this is a question that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, I've asked it to people, I've had asked of me, um, what do you think God's calling you to do? Or what do you think is next uh, for you? I've found more often than not when I ask that question or when people ask me that question, um, my response or the response that I get is often like, I don't know. I don't know. I've got a vague idea of what it might look like, but I don't know. I don't know what the next step is, or I don't know what the step in two years is. All I know is, from what I know in my heart and where I'm meant to be, I'm not there yet. I don't know. I've had that question a lot in the last six to eight months. We relocated back to New Zealand from America. We were over there. I had my dream job. It was incredible. Where we live was an amazing place. But I was in the process of implementing Revolution Tour, which is the equivalent of Hope Tour, in America, we were going to roll it out. We were ready to go with Reggie Dabs in October. But we came back to New Zealand with our daughter who had just been born in September. Uh, and though we had social security and we could live and work in America, um, there were some technicalities in the way the immigrant attorneys had done our paperwork. When we got to the embassy in New Zealand to get our visa stamped, there were issues. Uh, so we went into limbo for a little while. And then just bef- it took far too long. So just before Christmas, we had to make a decision. We can't keep living in two places at once. Our employers can't afford to employ us while we're not in the country. So we had to make a decision to stay back in New Zealand, which was strange because I felt like God had called us to that place. And I felt like we had been positioned to do something significant there and we were building it there and all the words and prophecies were leading towards that. But now we're back in New Zealand with no jobs, no income, uh, no school for the kids, no home, trying to figure out what life looks like. And as we've been in the process of figuring things out, I've um, worked a ton of jobs. I've been in landscaping. I went back to work for my dad as a swimming lifeguard. I know I don't look like a lifeguard, but I'm buoyant and I float, so it works. Um, I managed to get a job at a radio station as an announcer, which is so much fun. Um, They pay me next to nothing, so I do take each and every um, shift uh, some of the merch home with me as extra payment, okay? Um, The boss said it's okay. 
because he knows that he's paying me nothing. Uh, I also got a job. I just somehow fell into selling bullion, gold and silver, uh, with a luxury lockbox uh, vault in, New in Auckland, New Zealand. It's one of the most secure buildings in New Zealand. I ended up working for them and working between the market and people trying to acquire gold and silver. Something that's way outside my wheelhouse. I don't necessarily enjoy it, but it pays the bills at the moment. But in amongst all of those things, as well as getting to come over to Australia, uh, people have been asking me, What's, what do you feel is next for you? What do you feel like God's calling you to do? And all I can go back to is, I know God's calling me to have an impact in the world. I know God's calling me to glorify him through my talents and my gifts, but I don't know what it is next. So at the moment, I'm just doing the best I can with what I've got in front of me. Has anyone ever felt like that? Like, I just don't know yet what that looks like. Um, probably a, just another way to nail that home. I was having a great conversation with Mark this week in the car. And I asked the question of him, what's next for you? And Mark said, well, it's an interesting season. I love the space I'm in. It's challenging. It's very, very challenging. I'm learning so much, but I don't know what's next. And there's a sense of frustration when we're walking faithfully with God and we're doing great with what we've got in front of us, but we don't know what is next. But I think there's some keys in the scripture and there's some keys as we unpack it that will help us help that become a little bit clearer. Is that cool? Very, very cool. I'm sure many of you will relate. Um, we've had teasers or we've had glimpses of the future and God, but then life happens and the kids lose their uniform and you fail an assignment at school or a business uh, proposition comes up and you have to work hard on that or there's assignments to mark or the ki um, there's uh, works asking for overtime or church isn't doing what it should be doing or the wife's nagging or the husband's disengaging uh, or the dinner wasn't great or there's sales on a DFO or Carlton are playing Collinwood this weekend or what episode of Love Island and Big Brother are we up to like life happens and it can distract us and deter us from what we feel God is calling us to do, or just distract us from thinking and focusing on it. And I think God wants to shift our thinking this morning so he can make us into the person he's called us to be. And I know for all of us in a broad sense, the best way I can put it is something like this. Greek, there's a Greek bishop in 130 AD, his name was Arrhenius, and he said this, God's glory is the glory of God is man fully alive. And I just feel like, in essence, that is what we are about. We're to take our talents, our gifts, our time, what we can do in the spaces we're in to give God glory. But that shapes and constantly moves and shifts. Because if you've ever had a dream from God and you've reached the point where you've achieved that dream, you'll realize the goalpost shifted again. And God goes, you thought you could settle in this place? I've got so much more for you. And so we're constantly in this tension of trying to become the person God has called us to be and have the kingdom flowing, flowing through our life. And I'm just in the introduction. So we're going to get there. But in order to know the will of God, we must first be transformed by the way we think. So let's extrapolate this verse and take some keys out of it. Point number one this morning to help you go from the person that you are now to the person God has called you to be to where we live in somewhat mediocrity and ordinary and conformed living, to the patterns and the behaviors of this world, to someone who is ministering in the gospel through the gospel, God is ministering the gospel through them in the place that you are. In order to step into that, point number one is first thing we need to do is we need to resist. The first thing in the scripture in Romans 12 verse 2, Paul writes, do not copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't be like everyone else. 
Don't conform to the pattern. God wanted, wanted one of you, so he designed one of you. So why do we settle to be like everyone else? You were made to be different. You were made to be special. You were made to be unique. You were made to stand apart. Let's not conform. But it's so easy to do it, isn't it? When trends come out, it's like mullets. I love that mullets have come back in. I tell this joke in schools all the time um, because there's just kids in every school we go to, there's like a group of boys that have mullets. And I have to acknowledge them because you've got to be a different type of confident to rock a mullet. I don't have that type of confidence. But when people rock it, it's so, so cool. Uh, so I like to tell the students, like, oh, when I was at school, um, mullets, like, weren't in. They weren't super trendy. Uh, but a couple of my friends did have mullets. They're in prison now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. They just got out. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. All the kids with mullets just shrink in their seats. <laughs> but we do it with trends, mullets, flared jeans, ladies, or men, flared jeans. Cuffed jeans, I know this has gone out of fashion now, but um, cuffing was really good for like five years where you'd roll up your jeans a little bit. I haven't moved on to the next trend, so I'm still cuffing. We do it when it comes to restaurants. I don't know if you've ever walked past a restaurant and seen it empty, so immediately thought it must not be good. But there's a restaurant next to it full of people, so immediately what we do is we conform. We copy the behaviors and patterns of people. I love that we do it on social media as well. I've so interesting during COVID and lockdown, I didn't realize so many of my friends were epidemiologists. I didn't realize that they knew so much about viruses and vaccines. It was incredible. But everyone was posting about it. So everyone became an expert. When uh, Ukraine and Russia went to war, they all became experts on war and conflict. Um, it's so bad, isn't it? It's me too. I do the exact same thing. I was an expert on Eastern Europe. Um, or when there's a tropical cyclone, we all become climatologists. We know exactly what's going on around the world. We do strange things because of our innate desire to fit in. And we do it all the time, and all of us are guilty of it. When I moved to America, I needed to make friends. Um, so naturally, I conformed. Everyone was into barbecue. So I got into barbecue, which wasn't a big step from kind of how I was already living. Uh, but I'll never forget going to, um, I went to a formal event that was on a ranch, um, and the dress code was formal. So Esther and I got dressed up, and we went to the event, and we parked up, and we got in line to enter the event, uh, uh, the event and I was wearing a dress shirt and a suit jacket. Because for me, that's, that's, a, that's a formal attire. I wanted to look tidy. When we joined the line, uh, all the men around me were wearing plaid shirts, big cowboy belts, their jeans, boots, and cowboy hats. Their formal was different to my formal. So I looked at Esther and I just said, I'm going back to the car. I lost my jacket. I found a shirt that had been in the car for about four days and tucked it on. But there was just something in me. I didn't want to stand out and look like the city slicker in a rural town. So naturally what I did was I conformed. It's an interesting concept, but it comes from our need for belonging. In prehistoric times, there was no other way to survive. We had to hunt large animals for food, but we also had to protect ourselves. And the easiest way to do it was to gather together in social groups and work together. Now, we have evolved from that, but our craving for human contact is still there, and our fear of rejection is still there too. Following social norms improves our chances of being accepted by other people. We also don't want to elicit negative social sanctions. If we don't fit in with everyone else, how is that going to impact the way that we flourish in life? So naturally, we conform. But Paul writes, do not conform. There's an interesting 
study done by Simon, uh, Simon, I want to get the right name, uh, last name, Simon Ash. Um, he did a group conformity study in the 1950s. It's quite famous. And what he would do is he would get um, some information and he'd put it on the board, but he had five what they would call conformance in a group. And then the sixth person wasn't in on the task, but they didn't know that everyone else was conformance and in on what was going on. So what they would do is they would get the six people to sit down in the fifth seat they would have the, the, the stranger, the person who didn't know what was going on. And they, he would show a graph like this one here. And then the, the challenge was, there's your target line. Between A, B, and C, you need to find the line that matches the length of the target line. And so obviously the answer is, is it? <laughs> obviously the answer is C. It's pretty easy to see. And so what they would do, is they would show this to the group and they would show a couple and everyone would say the same answer, C, it's C, it's C. Then they, after about three times, they would show another one and then all the conformance, even though the answer was C, they would say B. And so he got them to answer one by one and the first person went B and the second person went B and the third person and the fourth person all went B. And when it got to the fifth person who wasn't in on it and was just looking at the graph, even though they knew C was the right answer, they would hesitate and pause, and more often than not, they would conform and say, B is the right answer. And then it would get to the sixth person, and they would say, B. There was a couple of instances where people would say the right answer, and, and then everyone that was around them would look at them like they were strange. And then when it, they did another one, and everyone was saying the wrong one, it's B, it's B, it's B. When it got to that person, after they had had the negative reaction or the negative social interaction with the people around them, they would look uh, around and then they would answer the same answer everyone else did as well. So if they had a ne negative social interaction based on their answer, even though it was correct, even though it was what they knew what was right, in order to fit in and uh, with the group and be socially accepted, they would give the wrong answer, contrary to what they believed in their heart. It's such an interesting study. They say 43% of the people would compromise. And if they had a negative social interaction on the first one that they answered as correct when everyone else answered it wrong, then they would fold on the second question and compromise. It's an interesting study, but I, I get it. We have a desire to fit in. I get how it can be for uni students. With the stuff that we're learning and the subjects that we take, it can be hard to have a differing opinion to what is currently taught these days. I get it can be difficult, so sometimes we can compromise and conform. I get how it can be for a teacher when the board of your school is implementing some social, um, in the name of an initiative, in the, in the name of exclusivity, uh, sorry, inclusivity, um, that you know is fundamentally wrong and going to be detrimental for the students. I get how it can be difficult when the leadership of a school is implementing something you know is wrong. I get how it can be to not speak up. It's difficult because we want to be socially accepted. I get how online through social media we can have us feeling like we need to have new clothes and go on vacation and spending all our money trying to keep up with the rest of the world. I get it. But the challenge from Paul is do not conform. Do not behave like the rest of them. Don't fall into the patterns. It's the first step to allowing God to change the way you think. And if he can change the way you think, he can transform you into the new creation. And when you become the new creation, you'll know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In order to do that, let's read the word. Let's learn about the way God thinks. And it's 
thoughts towards us. Let's stay connected to a body of believers that are like-minded. Let's plug into connect groups. Let's serve a couple of services a month. Let's catch up with someone. There's ways and things that we can do in order that we don't just become like the rest of the world. You are a product of the environments you're in and the things that you consume. Get connected to God and his people. That's point number one. Let's move on to point number two. Point number two, relinquish. So the first one, resist. The second one, relinquish. In the scripture, it says, but. Everybody say, but. So the instruction after not conforming is to now let God transform you into a new creation by changing the way you think. God's ability to transform you into the new creation is not the issue here. It's our willingness to let him. God's ability to transform us is not the issue. It's our willingness to allow him to do it. We need to give God permission. But why does God want to change the way we think? It was found in a study by the National Health Institute that human beings have on average 12 to 60,000 thoughts per day. Sorry, 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts per day. Um, so you might sit anywhere in between there, and that's based on an average on how long you sleep, how busy your jobs are. If you live a full life, you might be higher up on that scale. Of those thousands of thoughts, 80% of them are negative. And 95% of them are recurring thoughts from the day before. But 80% of your 40,000 thoughts per day are negative? That's an incredible number. And that's why I think God wants to change the way we think. Because if we're constantly thinking in and of ourselves, or our thinking is self-centered, centered, which it can be, and it's a challenge for me every, each and every single day, because when I wake up, the first person I think about is myself. The challenge is to get out and get beyond myself so that I'm not stuck in the negative rut that I've created. Am I making sense this morning? If you were to write a book about your daily thoughts, it would not be a top seller. It would not. You wouldn't even want to read it. Our book would be full of our worries, our fears, our regrets, our complaints about ourselves and others. We have a negative cognitive bias, and for some strange reason, we love the comfort of ruminating in those things. It is comfortable, but Paul knew our thinking was an issue. He said, bring every thought into captivity and make it obedient to Christ. Jesus knew our thinking was an issue. Jesus said, if any man even looks at a woman in lust, he has committed adultery. Originally, the law would say, if you committed adultery, you perform the sin. But Jesus takes it a step back from that, and he says, hold up, hold up, hold up. It's not just your actions. It's actually your thoughts that distance you from God. So both Paul and Jesus knew our thinking was an issue. I love the way Brene Brown, who's an amazing uh, researcher, psychologist, she's written a lot of books. Many of you will know her. She says, the number one meditation of the heart is not enough. Has anyone ever felt like that? Not enough? Those thoughts can be applied to time. Ever felt like you don't have enough time? Money. Ever felt like you don't have enough money? Talent. Ever felt like you don't have the strength or talent required to do what's put in front of you? We're constantly thinking about not enough, whether it's ourselves or the things that we're doing daily. A question to everyone in the room, how did your Sunday sermon, or how did your sermon start this morning? How did the sermon you preach, or out, preach yourself start when you woke up? How much sleep did you get last night? Not enough. For the Hope Tour team, you guys will relate, how much sleep did you get this week? Mark, how much sleep did you get this week? 
<laughs> How much money do you make on that job? Not enough. Um, it's really interesting. One of my uh, old youth kids just finished university and was applying for a job. And he came up to me and he said, Ben, um, is $60,000 a year a good salary? And I said, yeah, sure it is. Until you make it. And then suddenly it becomes not enough. It's actually great money for a single student. But it's not enough. I think the enemy's favorite sermon is not enough. If you're in the center of your thoughts and life's devolt revolves around you, then the answer will always be scarcity. The resource you need to live the life that you're called to will never be satisfied if our thoughts are centered on ourselves. If our thoughts come in and of ourselves, it will never be enough. But if your thoughts are centered on Christ, then the source, then there's always enough because he is more than enough. He supplies every need. He is the faithful one. He's the God who comes through. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the one who provides. If we center our thoughts in and around him, we can get through. We can do what we need to do. And we can start to take control of the way we think because God is the center of our thoughts. Is my making sense this morning? It's not the sermon your pastor will preach that will change your life. It's the sermon you preach to yourself. Talk to yourself like you like yourself, like you believe in yourself, like you see yourself, and like you know yourself. It is so important we allow God to transform the way we think so we don't get stuck in the negative ruts of our cognitive biases. We have to start talking to ourselves better and allowing God to change the way we think. If we create a positive framework centered around the Word of God, it will boost your resilience and it will boost your self-esteem. I know in the world that we live in today, we need great self-esteem to stand up bold in Christ, but we also need great resilience to combat the things that are against us. The nature of life, which is to beat us back and to suppress us. We need resilience to create a positive um, framework for yourself by centering in around the Word of God. The way we think is critically important to who we become, which is why God needs to change the way we think in order to transform us into a new creation. Thoughts are powerful. The Israelites walked around the wilderness for 40 years because of a thought. When the spies went out, two of them came back with a good report. But 10 of them came back with a negative report. What was the report? We are not able to go up against the people because they are too strong for us. Was that the truth? No. But that was the thought that led to their attitudes, which led to their beliefs, which then in turn led to their actions. And they walked 40 years in the wilderness because of a thought. What thoughts have held you back for far too long? It's time to relinquish and allow God, give God permission to transform the way you think this morning. The enemy can't take what God gave you, but if he can get you with the thought that opposes it, he can keep you so weak that you don't possess it. It's what he did for the Israelites. The enemy cannot take what God gave you, but if he can get you with the thought that opposes it, he can keep you so weak that you will never ascertain it. It's so important we change the way we think. I'm going to get on to point three and then finish with the story because I know we're getting on and I'm getting hungry. I, uh, I personally have never heard the audible voice of God. I've heard um, God through my wife. I'm sure many of the men in the room will understand and relate. Um, but God has never spoken to me and I've never heard Ben turn left this morning. Like, I've never heard, God, I, that was my lame attempt at Morgan Freeman. Uh, wasn't it? Man, if God talked like Morgan Freeman, I would listen in. That would be super cool. But sometimes it's not that clear. I've found God would often speak to me through a thought. 
through an unction that isn't in and of myself. It's something contrary to the way I usually think, to my defaults, to my customs, to my mainframe, to my operating system. God was speaking a thought that makes me go, where did that come from? And often if it lines up with his character and his word and his presence and the feeling I get in my heart when I know I'm connected with God, I'll go, okay, God, I'm going to trust that you're speaking to me right now. God speaks through our thoughts, which is why it's so so incredibly important we allow him to change the way we think, to create thoughts inspired by his word, his presence, and his character. Thoughts create attitudes which lead to actions and behavior and then habits. George Bernard Shaw wrote, progress is impossible without change. And he who cannot change his mind cannot change that thing. It's so important that if we are to implement the kingdom of God in the spaces we're in, we allow God to change the way we think. Because unless he changes the way we think, we cannot change anything. So the key to that is let him, let God surrender, relinquish control, Be humble, for God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud, a.k.a. those of us, myself most days, who are too stubborn to let God have control. We have to relinquish control, and not just in a moment on a Sunday service, but every single morning, every hour, before every meeting, before I talk to my kids, as I get out of the car when I get home and have to interact with my wife, I've got to relinquish control and say, God, I'm going to allow you to transform the way I think. Let your spirit speak to me. Let your spirit minister to me. It's your spirit moving me. God's ability to transform you into the new creation is not the issue here. It's our willingness to let him. Point number three and the final one. Relearn. Resist, relinquish, and then relearn. In the scripture, it says, then you will learn God's will for you. Learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Learning and knowing are two different things. Uh, To know is a stationary mode in which we are the subject matter experts in what is going on. Learning is a journey to understand. So even on the process of God revealing his will to us, it is a journey to understand it, which is why it can take time. I found God takes us on roads and as we take steps to, and then helps us take steps to adjust our thinking along the way. But it's interesting because it can actually be really difficult for an adult to change the way they think. I love to tell students all the time, it's critical the decisions you make as a teenager because they're the most important decisions you'll ever make in your life. The most forming years for your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain responsible for your safety responses, for the way we think, our habits, our judgment, how we process the world around us, that is forming right up until the age of 24. So the decisions you make as a teenager really impact the way you're living because you can create patterns in your brain that help you later in life. So as an adult now, I'm stuffed. I wish I would get up at 5 a.m. in the morning when I was 16 years old and had have gone to the gym. Now it's a challenge because I didn't get that habit in when I was a teenager. If you're a teenager, start to think about the person you want to become and start implementing the habits now. But we're a little bit, it's a little bit hard to change the way we think once we're adults. We're stuck in our ruts. We're stuck in our ways. Have you ever had a habit or an issue or a problem that you just keep going back to? And you've ever ever just thought, I'm stuck in this and I can't get out. This pattern that I have, and it can be in the most extreme things or the most simple things we do daily. Well, if you're over 25, I'm sorry, we're all stuffed. There's no hope for us. This message is for the young people. No, the beauty of the gospel is there's always a solution and there's always a way. 
And it is through Christ. I love this. Um, I think it's why Paul wrote in Romans 7, I don't really understand myself, for I do what, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Anyone felt like that? We, we have desires to do the right things, but sometimes we're just stuck in our ways. The brain only really remodels itself from extent, after we've, it's fully developed our prefrontal cortex. The brain only really remodels itself from intense experience or traumas and or consistent, consistent, consistent behaviors and patterns. So it can be really hard to change, but there is hope. Stanford University performed a study in the 2000s with a group of about 30 young people who experienced uh, accidents which have affected the way that their prefrontal cortex was developing. They had neurological disorders <clears throat> right across the spectrum. And this university decided to get this group together and say, can we figure out if we can cause the prefrontal cortex to reshape or remodel or renew? Or is it really just stuck in its way? And the longer they worked with this group, they found that some of their behaviors began to change. Some of the learning difficulties that they had, they could overcome because of a bunch of different factors. But the primary three were these three things, which I thought were incredible. The first one, positive environments. If they could get these young people into positive environments where people were constantly uplifting them and supporting them, was so much easier for the part of their brain that was responsible for decision making and for their thoughts to reshape and remodel. The second one was therapy or mentor-mentee relationships. Getting into spaces where they can learn speech and language therapy, learn how to talk again, learn how to think again, learn how to walk again. These relationships were pivotal for them reshaping the way that they think and the way that their brain works. And the last one was mindfulness and meditation. Doesn't it sound oh so familiar? I love that science now is backing up what God has been saying for centuries. But let's go back to the first one, positive relationships, uh, positive environments. Doesn't that just sound like church or connect group? Getting into a space where people are challenging you to be greater, challenging you to seize everything God has for you, challenging you to be the type of person God has called you to be and not allowing you to settle for anything less. A type of space where when you have a hard week or you're going through a tough time, people will wrap around and support you. And even on the hard days, there's a little bit of light. Even on the hard days, they'll point you back to Jesus who is the hope of our future. Isn't it beautiful that positive environments can help reshape the way we think? Getting into a connect group during the week and being with like-minded people and being challenged in that space, getting to youth on a Friday night, hanging out with our youth leaders, isn't it incredible? Positive environments can impact the way we think. What does the Bible say about it? Do not forsake the gathering together of believers as so many are in the habit of doing. Get yourself in positive environments and before long, you will begin to change the way you think. The second one, therapy or mentor-mentee relationship. What was the charge of Jesus in Matthew 26? Go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. Get people alongside and teach them. Get yourself into a disciple or mentor-mentee relationship where someone can challenge you on the way you think, where someone will hit you up when you're doing stupid things, hit you up about the way you talk to the, your wife, hit you up about the way you're acting in public, hit you up about the things you posted on social media and challenge you to be better and greater. And get yourself into spaces where you can challenge others and encourage them and support them because in doing so, it lifts you. And the third one, Mindfulness and meditation. 
It reminds me of when David wrote, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. Psalm 19, 119, my eyes are awake, though the night watches, that I may meditate on your word. Psalm 143, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. The more we pray, the more we meditate on the word of God, the more we spend time with him, we can reshape the way that we think. Sometimes God does it in a moment. But I found more often than not, he'll take us on a journey to reshape the way we think. And when we give him permission and we relinquish control, control he will shape us into the person that we are meant to be, he's desired us to be, the person he created us to be. Amen. I'm going to finish with this story and then we're going to pray. Um, about 2017, uh, I had the privilege with um, to go up and do schools tour in London, UK. I was actually invited by Mark Nash, who leads the church in Bunbury, the ex church in Bunbury, Western Australia. Oh, him and his family look so much happier in Australia. Oh my goodness. They've come alive. They're adventuring. Get out of London. <laughs> I, um, it was a privilege to go and do schools over there and I got to do it with my wife. She's an incredible schools communicator. And we were working together that week. Um, but just about nine weeks before we left uh, to go to the UK, we had found out um, that Esther was pregnant, which we were so incredibly excited about. Um, this was our first pregnancy and we told a few of our friends and our families and our excitement. We were just so pumped uh, to, to now be starting a family. Um, and then we took off and we got to UK and we let Mark and Shaman, who are our great friends, and on the news as well. And then we got about doing our schools for the, the week and it was busy. We we're right around London. We were doing multiple schools per day, just as we would do for Hope Tour, giving a message of hope to young people. Um, but on the third day, we finished our last school for the day and um, Esther just felt anatomically in her body like something was wrong. Um, she went off to the bathroom and she had begun to, it might be too much, but she had begun to bleed. And in pregnancy, that's, that's not a good thing. Um, and um, so we were able to get off to the doctors just to figure out what was going on. I thank God for free healthcare between New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Um, and we were waiting for a couple of hours, and then Esther finally got seen. And as she got seen, um, we got the, the awful news that day that she had, she had miscarried. And um, for us, it was a challenge because we were so excited. And we had spent we told our friends and family and not only did we now have to navigate this for ourselves we had to eventually tell them which resurfaces everything uh, but we also had plenty of work to do for that week as well um, we told Mark who we were with and Mark gave us time and space he just said don't do what you're meant to do tonight go back to the hotel let me know what you need to do tomorrow if we need to the team can cover everything we'll work it out and Esther and I spent some time that night crying and I just my response was just, I need to be here for my wife I just need to do what I can to support her as much as I can. And I, that's such a challenging space to be in because I didn't know what type of support she needs. I'm the type of person that if I, I hug my wife, she tells me to get off her. Um, so I can't support her and hold her because she's like, get away from me. Um, and if I say something, I always say the wrong thing. So it was a complex thing trying to figure out how to support her, but then also navigate the complexity and the emotion of the situation. Um, but as we got prepared for the next day, um, Esther, I said, babe, just stay. Stay in the room. 
you need to do process. We had a couple of good friends in London. Um, it's challenging, even more challenging because we're so far away from home and she just wanted to be a family. Um, but I just said, stay with your friends today if you need them. If you don't need them, just stay in the room. I'll be here with you. My wife turned to me and she says, we've come here to do a job. Kids in these schools need hope. You need to go and do the schools. Uh, that was a massive challenge for me because I didn't want to leave her. Uh, but she didn't give me a choice. She said, you have to go. That's what we're here for. So even in spite of what she was going through, she released me to do schools that day. It was a challenge, but every single day we'd get up, give these kids a message of hope. We did all the schools. I went back to her that evening. She was meant to speak at the night rally. She said, you need to go. We do a night rally. I'm preaching hope and love to these kids. God's got a plan. God's got a future. But inside my heart, turmoil was raging on. I didn't know how to make sense of the situation. I was broken. I was grieving, but I'm preaching a message of hope. God does his thing. Young people get saved. We get to Friday. She releases me again. You got to go. She stayed back in her room in the hotel. I did it that day as well. We did a rally night that night. And in the same space in my heart, of preaching God is so good. God's going to transform your world. You just got to hang on. The dark days get better. But then going back to a hotel with my wife, who's in tears. It was a challenging moment. Um, we left that Saturday. We went to America. We got to spend a few days relaxing. We went to Disneyland, which is really cool. We walked through the gates and Esther saw Mickey and immediately started crying. I didn't know she was a fan of Mickey. I think it was just the craziness of the situation. We got back to New Zealand and we just got on with life. We told our friends and family what had happened. Um, but I just found over the next couple of months, strange things were happening to me. I was pretty used to um, chairing or service leading in church or speaking in different environments, particularly youth environments as well. But anytime I would get up to speak, I would have extreme anxiety. And until this point in my life, I never really experienced anxiety or depression or anything like that. So I didn't know how to make sense of what was going on. But I would have so much anxiety. I'd be stressing. I couldn't sleep the night before. Right up until the moment, I was shaking. Um, sometimes I could get through with it. But more often than not, I would find a way to orchestrate it so I wouldn't have to do the challenge that was in front of me. We Time just elapsed. We went to a summer camp. And again, I was, I was due to service lead on the third night. Um, I was freaking out about it. I didn't know how to do it. This is something that I love doing, something I felt like my talents led me to, allow me to give glory to God in this space. Um, but again, that whole week, stressing, scared, anxious, not knowing what's going on, freaking out. Uh, so I orchestrated it so I didn't have to do it. I, what I actually did is during the games all that day is I just yelled as loud as I could until I lost my voice. And then I wasn't able to do that night, so I went up to the camp leader. I just said, I can't do it tonight, I got no voice. He said, no worries. For him, it was nothing, but for me, I copped out again on what I knew I could do. But I didn't know why I was doing it. When the camp finished, Esther and I uh, were lying in bed one night and we were talking, and I was explaining to her what was going on for me. We hadn't talked about it until this point. And as we were talking, I had realized, because of the nature of what had happened in London and the emotion and, I guess, to a degree, the trauma and the what was going on in that event in our lives, I had associated that and attached that to speaking, to ministering, and to what I, I love to do. Because that was the thing I had to do, but I was trying to process everything on the inside while delivering a message of hope. So now anytime I went to speak or deliver a message that would edify or build someone up, I would have extre extreme crippling anxiety. And the moment I realized that, I just began to cry and cry ugly sobbing 
And, um, you know, from that moment that I realized that not everything changed, uh, but Esther encouraged me to go and talk to one of my leaders about it. I spoke to Esther and then I spoke to one of my leaders and I processed it with them. I didn't want to go and be in church environments because they reminded me of the grief and the pain that I felt in London, but I kept making my way into those spaces. And then something that I started to do that I hadn't done for a very long time was each day I started to just write down truths and beliefs in God's word to allow me to think about different things. And over the, the period of about six to eight months, I realized God was able to change the way I think, change the, the trauma and the experience that I had and what I had attached it to. And I suddenly became confident to do these things again. Now, does it rear its ugly head sometimes? Absolutely. But the cool thing is God didn't deliver me in the moment. He took me on a journey, kept me in positive environments. I chose not to forsake the gathering together of believers. I stayed in discipleship or mentor-mentee relationships where people could challenge the way I was thinking and encourage me. And I ruminated and meditated on God's word. And as I did those things, God was able to change the way I think and take me and create me into a new creation. Take me to the next steps, begin to reveal his word, his will for me. But I love everyone into the in the room to do is just stand up to your feet. We're going to have a moment with God and I'm going to finish. The challenge from Paul is to first resist. Do not conform. Don't be like everyone else. God didn't have you, so he designed and created one of you. He wanted you. Relinquish control and then begin to relearn his will for you. We learn the way to do things. For some of us today, he'll do something in a moment. You know what's holding you back. You know the struggles and the thoughts that you have that prevent you from seizing all that God has called you to. And for some of you, it's something new that surfaces itself, an insecurity and inferiority, something that's holding you back. Maybe it's a failure you have and the shame that you've attached to that action or that behavior. For others, it's something that we've been going over for so long. I think God is faithful to deliver us in a moment. But I also think God is faithful to grace us for the journey ahead of us. So with every eye closed and head bowed in this room, if that's you, you're just saying, God, I'm going to relinquish. I think that's the challenge this morning. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Relinquish control. If that's you, why don't you just lift out your hands and say, God, in your own words, band will come in and lift things up in just a moment but right now while there's a moment to say God I relinquish it to you I relinquish control of my thoughts I need you to invade and permeate my thinking I need your spirit to renew and sanctify my mind I think it's something we can all do daily but if you know there's something there just relinquish control and know it's hard I know there's comfort in the negative thoughts but relinquish control to God today let him take you on the journey with His grace to empower you to do everything you're called to do and be everything that you've been designed to be. So Father, I thank you right now that you are moving in power. I thank you. You are not distant. You are not far away, but you are closer than the air that we breathe. And I pray there would be a new compulsion, a new catalyst moment in our lives to compel us to plug into the community in a greater way, to get ourselves in positive environments and consume consume positive things that can change the way we think. (laughs) Lord, that we'd have the bravery 
to open up and mentor-mentee relationships, discipleship relationships, and be vulnerable enough to be real with people so that we can develop and change and transform. And Lord, that we would dedicate time to get into your word and like David, meditate day and night on the good things that you've done and the way that you've designed and created us. So God, we love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, if that's you, just stay in that moment. Relinquish control. The band's going to begin to sing. Let's worship God and let's give it to him.